Welcome to season three of And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. From weekend warriors to Grammy winners, Banzoogle powers the website for tens of thousands of musicians around the world. So whether you're just starting out or looking for an affordable solution to build a new website and manage your direct-to-fan sales, you can use Banzoogle's simple tools to design a website and store that both you and your fans will love. Go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days. And be sure to use the promo code ATWI. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of your subscription. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's writer, producer, artist has won three Grammys, been nominated for six others, sold more than 200 million songs, set the record for the most played song ever at Top 40 Radio, and then broke his own record the same year. It all started when he was discovered on TV before that was cool. After which, he got signed, got dropped, and got signed again. From Tulsa, Oklahoma, this guy's commitment to his craft is iconic, and his loyalty to his band, collaborators, and most importantly, his wife and kids is legendary and the writer is not just a foodie and real estate mogul but also one of the two people who convinced me to pursue being a songwriter for people other than myself ryan tedder what an introduction (laughs) that's so great it's kind of crazy just thinking of when we met yeah you know like we kind of met before all this happened for either of us us and you know and then uh to be in your new studio, which is not too far from the apartment that you were living in mm-hmm. uh, about ago. 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. You know, where you had to walk upstairs with your crutches oh because you had already busted an Achilles. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, and you're like living in in that apartment 10 years ago and to be in, you know, essentially one of your places yeah. right now and to, is this is awesome. It's a trip. It all started on Mansfield, man. So crazy. Yeah. Um, let's give a little bit of background. I mean, obviously, I know that you, you know people can look you up if they don't know you. But yeah. uh, let's start with uh, when you were born. 
I was born uh, June 26th. Do I have to say the day? No, now? you don't. <laughs> yeah, but ni- 19 something. I'm a child of the 80s. Right, right, right. There you go. <laughs> I always I had a, my first album was called Reagan Baby. Oh, yeah. But technically, I don't know if he had, I think he had won the election. But I think, I I think you would. and I are like identical yeah. age. Yeah. yeah um, uh, was I going to say June, we'll 20, we'll, we'll June 26th, me and Ariana. Ah, same birthday. So you guys are the same yeah, age. Every, every, birth, every 26th, I send her a happy birthday. I like that. Um, okay, so you're, you're from Oklahoma, and your, your family's into music at uh, all, too? I mean, I know that they were... Um, yeah, I'm from, I'm from Oklahoma. My family... So my parents got divorced when I was five. Um, my dad was a gospel singer and songwriter in the 70s and actually had you know, toured around the world with a couple different, like that's back when you had like the up with people, like the music singing groups that went around doing stuff. And gospel was, was oddly also in commercial music at that time. Like Bob Dylan was doing a gospel record and Larry Norman was having uh, radio hits. So my dad was kind of part of that. Um, he was <laughs> writing songs. This is really funny. He was, he wrote the entire album, Kathy Lee Gifford signed to CBS records. And like my dad wrote the album. Whoa. This is back before she was ever on TV. She was a singer and a Vegas like like uh, performer, and so my dad was kind of her the yin to her yang for a while, and did a lot of that music. And then, <clears throat> did um, she know that? She knows that. Yeah, yeah okay. she stopped me. I went to Regis and Kathy Lee back way when I was in college. I visited, and she was walking past me, and I said, "Hey, you know my dad?" She goes, "Who's your dad?" And I said, "You know." Uh, I'm Ryan Tedder and she goes she like grabs me and like is shaking my face and like kissing me I mean she's 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 Kathy Lee um so yeah anyway my dad did music and you know had a couple publishing deal offers he ended up getting married young and that's why he he ended up not pursuing music to be honest and I think I'm probably had part to do with that and um uh then I'm trying to think my uncle is a He's signed to one of the like the Christian record labels and has been a worship leader for like 25, 30 years. So that's kind of the extent of my... So they're still into it. They're still into it. My uncle does that. My cousin Ashley was in a band called um, The Clark Family Experience. They had like one one country hit forever ago and then he signed to like Simon Fuller's company. I mean, there's a lot of weird random yeah. music in my family, yeah. but... But the the house I grew up in with my mom and my stepdad, not musical at all. Like zero, zero music. Were any of your family members envious of your success? If they were, if they were, (laughs) (laughs) if they were, I don't think they would say it. I mean, look, I had cousins that I knew wanted to pursue music and were frankly better at it than I was at an earlier age. But I just, I'm kind of, Unfortunately, um, my personality type is insatiable. So once I decide I'm going to do something, it's it is insatiable. Like I'm not stopping, and I'm kind of I kind of put on blinders and just go. So I, I think there's, you know, look, one of my best friends growing up wasn't was way more serious about music than I was. I mean, he talked about it all the time being in a band, wanted to be like Oasis, and he won Battle of the Bands and was in a um. Uh, you know, for the state of Colorado and was in a successful band at the time. And so, and it didn't pan out, you know, it didn't pan out. I had a lot of, not a lot. I had some friends and family that wanted to pursue music and for one reason or another, life got in the way. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you go from being a kid in Tulsa to, you know, I'm going to be a songwriter and an artist? I mean. Um, So the, the truth of it is, is this, the, the divorce that my parents had caused me to be an only child. I didn't have any siblings. 
I didn't have any distractions. Um, not to say siblings are inherently distractions, but I, I didn't have the normal stuff that, that occupied. And this is before you and I grew up. We had the internet during our like puberty is I pretty much when the internet came out for, for, for you and me. Um, but we didn't grow up with iPhones and social media and distractions. We just like, if you get home and you didn't have a Nintendo, you go outside or you draw cartoons or you uh, read or you, or if you're me, you sit down and you play piano and play guitar. And, and so, you know, Oklahoma, somebody told me once at a, an ASCAP event, there was a big, there's a number one country writer that was on a panel with me and I'm spacing on his name. But what he told me was, and I've, a few other writers have confirmed this for me in Nashville. There are more songwriters from Oklahoma than any other state per, in terms of like per capita. Like the amount of people that are professional songwriters from Oklahoma is more than any, and that includes artists as well. Wow. Um, and if you go to Nashville, it's like every other person. And so I was sitting in a room one time and I realized that all three or four writers were from Oklahoma. None of us realized it. And one of the, I don't do a lot of country music, but maybe once a year I'll do a session. And um, it was like me, Carrie Underwood, another writer, another writer, and all of us were from Oklahoma. And we were like, why, why are we all here? And our conclusion is there's nothing to do in Oklahoma. If you don't play football and, and you're not a big drinker, neither, if, which that's me, you, you know, the, the odds of you and you have loads of church. So I think that's what, how did I get from like Tulsa to this? I had nothing but time. I was in church all the time, surrounded by music and it was my escape. I would sit at home and watch movies like they were, they were my friends. You know, I would watch movies on repeat and I became obsessed with acting and wanted to be an actor for a long time. I actually had a a scholarship as an actor and that I didn't take. Um, Is that what you went to? What did you go to school for? Uh, I went to school. I have a degree in advertising and, and marketing and, and a, uh, a, a minor, which is pointless in history, as we were talking about earlier. Um, and, but acting was my, my, my first love. And that led me to musical theater and at a young age. And when I was doing, I was that dude from Glee, you know, uh, that was like would go from the from basketball practice and sneak into the theater, you know. My a lot of my friends, I, I'm pretty sure, were convinced and family that I was gay growing up. Because when you do musical theater in rural Oklahoma in the country, and that's your passion, especially when one of the first plays you star in is some like it hot and you're in drag, which was me. Um, you know, people make assumptions, <laughs> right? And um, so. I wanted to be an I wanted to be an entertainer. I love theater. I still to this day I would do theater in a heartbeat. I love being on stage. I love acting. But um, my teacher pulled me aside and said, "Look, um, you know, you your, your voice you, it's something different. Like you're you're a fine actor, but your your voice is something really different. You should really focus on that." And so I did for hours every single day. And at the age I'm giving you kind of the weird chronology of it at age. 15, 14, um, I discovered Diane Warren and Walter Afanasyev and, and uh, um, why am I spacing on his name? He's one of the, he's right in, he's right in there with all the best. Uh, huge house in Malibu. I can't think of what his name is. I'm spacing on his name. But um, a bunch of the songwriters of the 90s, you know, like most people, I grew up th- assuming that if you're singing a song, you wrote it. Yeah. And then my dad popped, my, popped that bubble for me when I was about 14, 15. He said, you know, 
we're sitting there watching, um, uh, I forget what movie, but the song comes on at the end of the movie and it was a huge hit from that movie. Because in the 80s, that happened all the time. Breakfast and Club. Breakfast Club, thank you. Yeah, it was, it, this, this would have been like probably late 80s. It might have been like Days of Thunder or something sure. like that. So anyway, the song comes well, on. The song is bigger than the movie. This, where the song's bigger yeah. than the movie. That happened all the time. So the song comes on. I go, oh my God, it's amazing. You know, um, uh, and my dad goes, yeah, so-and-so wrote that. And I go, well, that's not who's singing it. And he goes, no, no, no. Singers don't write their own songs a lot of the time. And it was like you just told me Santa Claus isn't real. You know, or I don't have to, you don't have to pay taxes. I mean, it was literally the, the most mind-blowing Wait, concept. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Wait, what? What? You don't have to pay taxes. And so it was the most mind-blowing concept. And so once he told me that, I said, well, who writes most of the songs? And at that time, it was David Foster and Diane Warren wrote all the hits. So then I, I got on the internet and pulled up every song that the both of them had written and my head exploded. And it, that was the moment that I started getting serious about songwriting. Crazy. So yeah. you move to Colorado when? I moved to Colorado my senior year of of high school in Oklahoma. I told I went on a mission trip, came home, and told my mom I want to move to Colorado. Um, and a big part of it was, and this is not like talking smack about Oklahoma, because for anybody listening that's from Oklahoma, um, I just knew that my time there had run out. I had to get out of Oklahoma. I had to get somewhere else. And when I moved to Colorado, uh, it's like 97, I had my aunts and uncles who were like worship leaders and they were at least into music and culture and traveling. And those are three things that I knew I had to have in my life. Even if it was like under the auspices of doing mission trips, get me to Paris, get me to London, get me, get me out of, of Oklahoma. I need to see you know, some stuff and meet some interesting people. And that's a through line of all those writers that you've mentioned. You know, you're in Nashville with those four writers from Oklahoma. You're not in Tulsa with those four writers from Oklahoma. No, exactly. A lot of times people ask, you know, like, well, how does somebody get discovered from wherever? And part of it, most of the time is, well, move. Move. You you just, yeah. You know, move to the, proximity has something to do with it. And, And showing that you're willing to give up everything yep. to see what's behind you door just, number whatever. You just quoted my number one my number one piece of advice like uh, if people ask me how to get a songwriting you know there's there's let's say call it two or three things right number one I was I, I was at the, that same ASCAP event that I was speaking at like probably five or six years ago a lady stands up you know they do the round of questioning at the end of the panel she stands up and she has this thick Dutch accent and she says to me Hi, you know, I'm, I'm, I've have, I have cuts, um, on some, you know, European artists on major labels. I'm, I live in like Utrecht, which is a beautiful city in Holland, which I've toured and played and I love it there, right? There's a million reasons to live in Utrecht, Holland. My cousin lives there actually. And she goes, but it's, I find it very frustrating and it's, it's unfair why I haven't had hits and how can I make it in the music business? I said, ma'am, where do you live? And I already, I already knew the answer. She goes, Holland. I go, that's why. And she was like, what? I was like, move here. We're in, Le- we're in LA. Move here, move to London or move to New York, but don't be in Holland. That's yeah. number one. Because if you don't, even with YouTube and all that stuff, unless you're trying to be a singer, you know, if you're a singer and you're amazing, you can get discovered and be in Biloxi, Mississippi and labels might fly to you, right? Or something, or they'll fly you out. If you're a songwriter, then... 
you've got to go where it is. Everybody wants the anomaly. They tell the story about, well, Dave Matthews, you know how they 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 built their tour because they built their fan base because they toured all the. It's like, well, that was twenty five years ago. Yep. And yeah, they did it. I, I'm just saying that that you want to go where the risk is the lowest in yep. a way, so you have the yeah. best opportunity to succeed. And a lot of times, people fall back on the anomaly. Yeah, as everybody to, to try wants to, to tell be. the story. Like, well, yeah, but this writer doesn't live in LA. It's like, yeah, no, I, I understand. I'm yeah. talking about the the majority of them though choose yep. to live in those cities for a reason. Yep. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't live in LA for the better part of a decade, but that was after my career took off because I had seen Max living in in Sweden, and so I knew it was possible if you had enough hits and a reputation that you could do, you could pull it off for a while. But even even he moved back to LA, and so did I because it's. Do you think it hurt you moving to Denver? Yeah, no, I, I, I think, do you think I think during it, that decade that I had my biggest. It's hard to say. The biggest hits of my career came from the time I was in Colorado. If you remove like the first three, but uh, or yeah, bleeding, apologize, bleeding, love, and halo were all done in L.A. All the anything else that I did that was that was that of any report in the last eight years had been done in Colorado. Um, so it didn't hurt me when it started. And honestly, I think it, it kept kept me sane because I, as I told you earlier, I'm insatiable. When my career took off in One Republic, it also took off as a writer at the same exact time. Two completely independent careers. If I had stayed in LA and been accessible to all the labels, all the requests, all the so-and-so wants to get together, my marriage would have fallen apart. I probably wouldn't have the kids I have. It would have destroyed my life. So I knew that I, I personally needed to get out to have any kind of actual life. And then flash forward eight years, you're older, you're, you're, you're wiser and you're not as much FOMO going on. And I knew a year and a half ago or a year ago that I was like, I can, get, I can be back in LA now and, and not burn up. And, and, um, you know, and, and at a certain point too, um, it becomes way more taxing to not be here. It's just, you're making it harder on yourself to not be, and I don't just mean LA. London, you can do London as well. You know, London's fine. New York is sadly kind of, it's, it's, it's window has closed yeah. in New York. Um, I still love. I know there's some people who are putting some money into an infrastructure in New York to try to bring it back. Mm-hmm. But until there's a sort of state citywide move towards helping artists yep. survive with no income. Yep. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. You should, you're expensive. better. You're better served moving to Toronto right now than you are to New York. If yeah. you, you could, you could get way more. You know, Frank Dukes is a good friend of mine, and yeah, T minus is up there. Yeah, and, and you know, Frank's he, Frank's sitting at like number one and number two in the world right now, and to, out of Toronto. And um, when I'm up there, I work with him. He's coming down here, and and it's kind of hilarious because I'm like, dude, you're crushing the planet, and and you're not in L.A. So, but you're doing it in Toronto. Toronto is about the only other hot scene. It's funny when you and I moved to LA, um, or when you, when you and I both, when you know, uh, when you were in Glacier hiking and I was in what was called Republic uh, back in the day. Um, I don't know if you remember this because you weren't in the the songwriter scene yet. You were right. like considering it, but the hottest city in the U.S. Atlanta. That's where I was doing right. writing trips to Atlanta, which is crazy to even think about right now. Before we get there, you go, you get a college degree in advertising. Yeah, I don't know why I did that. But well, I mean, what you do right now is kind of advertising air. So, to a degree, I mean, there's some value in copyright 
yes. in in an advertising sense and being a a core in somebody's writing a chorus. I mean, on some level, yeah, for sure. That punchline is the punchlines, tags, donuts, all yeah. those. Yeah, I, I, if I'm going to be level with you, I picked the degree that was the easiest. Yeah, um, advertising, getting a degree in advertising. I'm sure after Mad Men, there's a lot more people getting that degree, but but I would be lying if I if I didn't. Tell you that I, I I coasted through that. Yeah. I just I got. Did you the, have a job after college in in advertising? <coughs> no, no, absolutely not. I um <laughs> absolutely. When a guy asked me, I'm not joking. There was a, a, a two brothers, uh, Tony and I forget his other name, but they they were starting a um. Oh my God, Tony and Adam Jones. I can't remember their name. They started a company in college, and they liked. I was in like a commercial for our college and. And I and they whatever reason they like we hit it off. They liked my personality and vice versa. And um, they they wanted me to work for them. They already had a profitable company. Uh, they were a year ahead of me. So I was a junior, they're a senior. They come and sit down. They say we'd like to interview interview you for for a job. And um, it's in advertising. It's in PR and advertising. And I go why? And they go um, you know because we we man we like you. You're the vibe we want for our for our. Uh, for our company, and I said, "I'm going to be. I'm going to level with you, man. Um, I would absolutely not hire me. <laughs> like I'm a junior." And they're like, "What? That's the the opposite of what you should be saying. We're offering you like we can give you like 35 starting." I was like, "Nah, I don't. I'd rather have 12 grand a year and sleep on a couch and and be doing something else. Like, you know, yeah, it was. I didn't want to get a job in advertising. I, I." Switched degrees um, because I had some like overarching pre MBA thing that was too hard. It was just took too much of my time. I knew that I wanted to go into um, uh, music or acting by my freshman year, and I took a class called sequencing and digital audio my freshman year, and it introduced me to Cubase, and my head exploded. Wait a minute. I can produce my own songs without anybody. I can just layer instruments. What is this? Like, and that's what set me off the course into music. And so then any class or course load that kept me from that room or from the piano rooms, which is where I was writing probably about five days a week, um, I would kill that class. So I realized, so I went to my advisor and I said, what's the easiest course? What is the easiest degree I could get? I just want to get out of here. And he goes, PR and advertising. And I go, done, switch me. And so I switched and it freed up a bunch of time. And that's literally, I am where I am because I had kind of a, a coast college career where, and I, and I wasn't dating intentionally. I mean, I'd go on dates. I would date during the summer, but I wouldn't date during the school year really with any, you know, very rarely simply because girls take up a lot of time. And I, I saw my friends that were getting locked down freshman, sophomore year with serious girlfriends. I thought they were nuts. I'm like, look, I, I love girls as much as you do, but like, I, I'm not trying to get married right now. We're like 19. But when you're from Oklahoma, from a, in a Christian community, 19 is when you should be shopping for a, for a fiance. I mean, it's crazy. Like they get married so young. I don't know if it's still happening, but early 20s is, is a reasonable time to get married and settle down and have kids. And it was, it, uh, you know, that to me was like the polar opposite of what, what I wanted to do. So I just, I would skip class and go to the, the, the writing rooms. I call them the writing rooms. They're the, the piano practice rooms, but I would block out the window and, and shut the door and, and I would three, two to three hours, you know. Okay, here's the deal. 
I am technologically challenged. I've always been technologically challenged. I barely know how to use this computer to record this thing that I'm recording right now. So I can guarantee you that I cannot build a website. And when I was in a band, I just needed something to help me build my band's website. Well, you are in luck because today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website for your music in minutes. Choose from over a hundred mobile-friendly themes. Then customize your design and content in a few clicks with Banzoogle's easy visual editor. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including tools to sell your music and merch commission-free right on your website, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations to pull in content from all your online services like Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Banzoogle plans start at just $8.29 a month and include your own free custom domain name. Go to Banzoogle.com to try it for free for 30 days. And be sure to use the promo code ATWI. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of your subscription. Banzoogle. Websites built for musicians by musicians. When did you start performing those songs that you were writing? I started performing them. So I wrote a... I wrote a song. I want to say this is the summer after my junior year. Um, I'm like 19. And I had already written a bunch of songs on piano. But I, I'll i give you... I mean, the, the, the summer that my whole life changed is the summer between my junior and senior year. I applied for internships at five film studios and five record labels. Virgin Records, Paramount Pictures, DreamWorks Pictures, DreamWorks Records. I sent out... Um, I mean... And you go, I, this is before the internet would give you all this information. So I would call the complaint hotline on the back of a DVD or, or a CD. There was always a, if you have questions or complaints, please call. So I'd call the complaint hotline. I just, is an idea that struck me one day. How can I get a hold of the HR department in a film studio, Paramount Pictures or Virgin, Virgin Records London, like Richard Branson's office, how can I call it? Call the complaint hotline. And you go, you know, I'm sorry, um, you know, can we, uh, you know, I'm so-and-so Virgin Records, you know, what, what is your complaint? I, and I would go, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was actually being transferred to HR. And the person would go, oh, I can connect you. And they would literally connect me to HR. The, per, the person at HR would pick up who was just a, just a phone jockey. And I'd say, they'd pick up, they'd say, you know, hi, this is Christine. How can I help you? And I'd say, Oh, I'm sorry. I was just on hold with the uh, uh, director of HR. I would just like, I'm sorry, I got reconnected. Sorry, I was already on hold. Can you put me back on hold for them? Oh, yeah, I'll put you right through. And lo and behold, I would have a director of human resources at a label or a film studio pick up the phone and I'd say, hey, um, I know this is random, but I'm calling you from a college dorm and I don't even want to tell you what it took to get you on the phone, but I want to work for you for free. And that was my pitch. And I did that a bunch of times and would take down all the information. And eventually I got turned down from Virgin, turned down from Paramount. And I kind of literally put it, I told my parents and, and told God, if a film studio 
gives me an internship this summer, I'm going into acting or producing. If a record label or a publisher, publisher gives me a gig, I'm going into music. And I literally just, that's, that was going to be my decision. And I get an offer from DreamWorks Records and publishing. I come out to LA, I interview with this guy and he goes, I don't have a position for you, but I can give you DreamWorks Publishing Nashville. It's like Nashville, I don't do country music. Right. He's like, well, that's, that's all you got, buddy. So I go to Nashville that summer. Do you know who that guy was? Because that would be yes, that'd be fascinating. You're not going to believe this. You you got me. I am 99% sure it was it was super young, like junior A and R Benjamin Groff. Benjamin Groff from Cobalt. Really? Mm -hmm. That's cool. I'm like 99% sure he's the guy that interviewed me like forever ago. Crazy. Like I can't confirm that. Uh, I could probably find out, but I ended up working for Abby Demesh. At she's um, in Nashville. They're called Chicks with Hits. I think they still exist. And Abby Namesh um, was my main person that I was working under uh, for the summer and James Stroud, who ran DreamWorks, and Scott Borchetta, who was the GM, who is now obviously Taylor Swift and Big Machine and all that. And um, Scott and I talked about this a few months ago, actually. It was funny. So long story short, I go to Nashville. I had already written some songs in my dorm room at ORU, and I first song I'd written was this really cheesy um, ballad that basically sounds like a fake baby face. Um, and I, I'd written that in a bunch of stuff on piano. How does it go? <clears throat> uh, <laughs> you put me on the spot now. It's like, is it, po- is it possible? Maybe ha- I'm not even gonna try to sing it. It's too early. So it's, it's a, it's a very cheesy baby face song. You can Google it. So, I go into ASCAP. This is how my, I mean, I'm, I've, I haven't told this story, I think maybe ever. I, I get to Nashville. At this point, I clearly, I'm, I'm, you know, obviously I don't really give many shits. I will just knock on anybody's door, open it, get in their living room and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I was already here. What's, what's going on? Yeah. And so I, I get to Nashville day one. I drop my bags at this dude's apartment, um, couch crashing. I drive to ASCAP. And my dad had told me a long time ago, ASCAP is required. If you have signed up and paid the $7 fee, they are required to service you. They are required to help you. Um, so I go in and I'm like, I, I'm an ASCAP member um, and I need some help. I need some connects. I need you to like, like take me around, whatever, whatever. And I go in to meet with this guy, Mike Doyle, and he blows me off for six weeks. Every week I'm calling him and I have a meeting, he cancels. Meeting, cancels. I go into ASCAP, I pay 50 bucks. I demo this song called The Look and one other song on piano on, on an ADAT. I, and um, 50 bucks is all I had at the time. So was, that was pretty, pretty risky. I go in to the orientation meeting at ASCAP. I'm sitting in the room. A guy gives his spiel, welcome to ASCAP. All these people just moved to Nashville. And it's like the summer of 2000. And, um, and then I walk up to the guy at the end of the meeting. I go, hey, so... I only have two and a half months here before I have to go back to college. I want to get a record deal and a publishing deal before the end of the summer. And he dies laughing. He goes, son, there are people here that have been here for 10 years that haven't gotten a publishing deal. Like that's just never going to happen. That's impossible. And like shattered my expectations. Um, Long story short, I end up in in a meeting with Mike Doyle. He's running ASCAP, the pop division. I'm sitting there. He's not even looking at me. He's like reading a newspaper, putting eye drops in his eyes, leaning back in the chair. And I hit play on the thing. And all of a sudden he like puts his eyedropper down, stops and gets in a dead stare. And he goes, play that again. 
And I play it again and he goes, what are you doing this week? And I go, nothing. And he goes, I need you tomorrow and the next day. We're, we're going to make the rounds. And he takes me around, introduces me to every publisher, writer. That weekend, I auditioned for a TRL. This is before being on television was a thing, really. This is like, I think American Idol started this, this, the same summer or year that I did this. And I, I auditioned at a Planet Hollywood to, to be on this TV show that's going to give you a record deal. And NSYNC is somehow involved in this. Like they're Lance Bass and, and, you know, Brian McKnight is a judge and Pink is a judge. And so I go up, everybody's doing cover, cover songs, some boy bands and all this. I get up with the acoustic guitar and sing the song and I come down and, the, and the, everybody says, the, the, the main judge, Robin Wiley, she goes, you're going to win this competition. I'm waiting tables at this dodgy place on 2nd Street in Nashville called Prime Cut. And um, she calls me. She goes, congrats. You've won the, the national search. You're one of four finalists. You're going to be on TRL in two weeks. We'll fly you to New York. We'll give you the information, blah, blah, blah. I go to New York. Um, online vote was like, 30% of the vote and then the rest was the judges and by the night before the competition I had 85% of the online vote and TRL did this expose on me and Tulsa and all this stuff I get on the next day perform the song win a record deal that wasn't really a record deal but I win and that's really what started my my career and um uh, DreamWorks James Stroud offered me a publishing deal and I turned out at that point because I knew I had the TV thing going I turned down every publishing deal and my attorney was like, keep your publishing, keep your publishing. As long as you can keep it, keep it. So that's really where my career started was that, that whole summer in Nashville. Who is the record deal with? Uh, the record deal, that's the, that's the dodgy part. It was Lance Bass's company. Um, and it was basically the fine print was you win the like the opportunity to win, to have a record deal. So he did, he, he was righteous, uh, very righteous about it. He took me around to a bunch of record labels. Um, I mean, I met with everybody. I mean, I met with everybody, Jimmy Iovine, and I met with Craig Kalman and whatever. And I had an offer from DreamWorks Publishing and a couple others. And during the, my final year in college, I'm in a dorm room and about every six weeks, I get on a plane to LA or New York to play more songs and meet with more people. Did everybody in college know what was going on? Was they like, did. Everybody watched it. So that's it. your first time like feeling kind of like It fame. made it super awkward. I mean, there were guys, I remember one guy walked up to me two months into college. I didn't know how to act because everybody had seen it. And I was known. People, I'd walk through the lunchroom and I'd see people pointing and whispering, that's the kid that just went, you know, and it was so awkward. My senior year was really awkward because of that show. I remember one kid that I was friends with came up one time and like cornered me and was like, yo, you think you're hot shit, man, just because you won this record deal. I was like, dude, where did you get that from? Yeah. Like, I'm not doing it. Do you see me like flossing, like, you know, uh, fancy watches and, you know, crazy shit? Like it was, it was really uh, uncomfortable. People, people would be surprised to realize <laughs> how many people who are famous that are... Um, really anxious yes. and are highly shy and, and yes. nervous about the fact that people are watching them Yep, and that it's really not their goal. I mean, one of the things that you realize from living in LA is that people who are famous aren't necessarily rich and people who are rich aren't really necessarily famous. famous. Yeah, And you'd be surprised when you see somebody that you recognize from a commercial or a movie or mm -hmm. a TV show or a band, it's like, 
they may not know how to act because it's weird and uncomfortable and yeah. unnatural. It is very unnatural. And by the way, it makes you come off way more dickish than you actually are. Cause yeah. you, you're kind of, you'll walk into a room and know, and then, and then our, our band takes, our band blows up and, and like, oh eight. And then I moved to Colorado and all of a sudden I'm like going into like Christmas parties and like birthday parties where in Denver, I like, I'm the only famous person in that room. And, and we're everywhere at that point. And I didn't know how to act. I probably came across as an absolute dick, not because I was, but because I didn't know. I was so awkward to have everybody. I spent most of my life liking disappearing into the background. It's taken me, I think it took me five or six years of being in that band and doing television to finally enjoy it and, and be completely natural in front of camera, in front of people, not be insecure, not be weird. Um, it took me, you know, half a decade to come to grips with it. Longer. It took me ten years to come to, t- to terms with that. And I think how most bands get about one song shot worth of learning about all these mistakes and yep. how to deal with people. And that's why so many artists have a lot of artists who are one hit wonders is because when you get that one hit, how to become a human in that case oh, is man. so difficult. It's people so don't difficult. Recognize that. It's so it's so difficult. And because I think you you said it, it's not natural. It's just not natural. And, um, you know, so to, to finish, I'll do a very succinct summary of the chronology of those last, uh, leading up to when I met you. I, I finished college by the skin of my teeth. I finished college. I still don't have a record deal. But um, at this point, I'm moving back to Nashville because it's the only place I know. Even though I wanted to go to LA, Nashville's way cheaper. So I... In between that, I moved to New York. I graduated college. I moved to, to, to Hoboken and I'm living in this house with these guys. I got recruited to be in a band and then I get there and I find out it's a boy band. And so, and funny enough, the person that told me to, to run was Timberlake. I, I'd met Justin through this whole TRL thing. So I've known Justin since probably 2000 for a long time and been, you know, f- friends with him. We're not like, like besties texting each other two in the morning, but we're, you know, been close enough for the last, However many, however many years. And I'm in the studio with them while they're finishing um, Celebrity. Like, like they were doing, you know, Dirty Pop and all that stuff. And um, we're kids. And he, he goes, what are you doing in New York? And I go, I, let me play you some songs. I play it for him. And he goes, man, that ain't you. He's like, that's not you. You, you, you need to be a solo artist or start your own band. Like, you, don't, don't mess around with, if it's not a band band, don't mess around with it. Don't do this. And he was like referring to boy band. And I was like, no, I, I know I'm not doing that. I just have to figure out what my sound is. And he's like, well, whatever, you need to get, get the hell out of that, like run for the hills. And so I walk away from that. I moved to Nashville, right? I was living in New York basically up until the Twin Towers fell, which was weird because my, my little jogging path was from Chelsea down to the Twin Towers and back. That was like my three-mile route. And so it was kind of weird to have that happen. But um I moved to Nashville. I spent a year and a half in Nashville just writing, kind of leveraging the TV exposure I had to get me into sessions, getting some cuts here and there, um, getting some more publishing offers. Flash forward a year to like 2002, let's say, and I have the idea, f- <clears throat> 2002, 2003, I have the idea for Republic. And what happens is like some at some point in 03, like the beginning of 03, I write... I sit down at piano and I, and I just like bust out some chords. And I'm like, ah, these chords feel good. And I'm looking for a, I'm spending a year and a half looking for my sound as a solo artist. 
and I'm, I'm playing some song, some, some chords and I'm at my dad's house in, in Colorado and I stumble upon the chords of Apologize and I immediately write the chorus. I have the chorus like that and then like the opening two lines of the song. Were and, you apologizing for something? No, I was writing, and I, as people know One Republic, we don't do a lot of songs that are, you know, the blessing and the curse of my band is that 99% of any hits or records we've had, they're not relationship-driven songs. Right. We write about life and kind of experience and like in, right. internalism and all these things, which makes it way harder to have hits, by the way. Don't start a band. Don't start a band with that as your, as your primary um, script because it's way harder. But um, Apologize is the only song, really, that was like ever, that was a relationship. And it was me writing like my kind of pent-up, angst and, and disappointment over every relationship I had in high school and college. And there was like two or three girls in particular that like really, I mean, broke my heart. They genuinely did. And I was very serious about my interest in girls. I wasn't just like dating to play around. And so um, I got burned and um, that's what led to apologize. I think that's why people connected with it. But that's kind of the chronology of Nashville to New York City to um, in, in 2000. Two and three, I was in New York a ton and I was in Nashville. Timbaland happened to watch that TRL show. He calls me a year later out of the blue and we talk for three hours on the phone. He's, this, is, this is him while he's doing Nelly, the Nelly and Justin and, that, and Missy, yeah. Missy Elliott. He's at Crazy. the peak of his career and he calls me out of the blue in my 300 a, night, or 300 a month apartment in Nashville. He says, I want to sign you to a production deal. And I'm going to fly you to Miami, fly you to New York, and we're going to start writing. And, and I end up spending about two years, a year and a half, two years from mid, mid-01 or like, no, beginning of 02 to basically 03, following Timbaland around the country, um, jumping in on some co-writes with him, doing Bubba Sparks, doing background vocals on Missy Elliott. Like I heard Cry Me a River the night they did it. You know, I, I was there for all those moments, for a lot of them. Um, and so I got a, that kind of, Glean, that you know that's vibe got into me and so um when i apologize and the sound of one republic is effectively the music that i grew up loving i.e brit pop rock oasis the beatles um doves a lot of british bands it's moody british music combined with like hip-hop and which is i.e the timbaland years yeah and so that's kind of what informed the sound of our band and that that leads me to meeting you you get signed to Columbia, yes, I, and then get dropped, dropped from Columbia, by Columbia, yeah, and then signed to Mosley, which is Inter- Tim's label, yeah, Interscope, yeah. Interscope. Yeah, is it the same band? It's all the same, but not not all no. the same guys. It's some of the same guys. The original band um, was called Republic, and it was the original band was Jared Bettis, who is now a writer producer that I think lives near you, actually. Jared Bettis, um, me, Zach Filkins. Timothy Myers, Tim Myers, who's a successful like musician, songwriter, jingle writer, all this stuff. Um, and that's the original four. And then Drew Brown, who joined, to, Zach got married and he filled in for a week during his honeymoon in like 04. And when Zach came back, we said, surprise, we have five guys in our band now. Like, yeah. So, and Drew was in a um, screamo metal band. And um, so that's the original band. It was Republic and which I still kind of wish it was Republic. I've always loved the simplicity of that. But, um, and then it evolved. We had, as every band does, we went through four drummers. 
<laughs> four drummers and two bass players. And the band as it is now is um, two th- from 2007. So it's, it's basically been a little over 10 years. First gig that we ever played, this is going to kill you. First gig we ever played as a band, as One Republic, like signed to, or I think we might have been, were we signed or dropped at this point? I forget, but was with Glacier Hiking. Wow. Yep. US, yeah, US, my cat. Dude, USC, <laughs> USC. So I sent an email to a bunch of people I knew at USC yeah. that were still students and stuff. And I was like, you guys have to come see this. I promise you, like, this band's going to be huge. Yeah. You know, we had just sort of started our thing. And I remember telling them, like, you got to see this. And they didn't realize that in, like, what they missed. Because yeah. I think we played for about 30 people. Yeah, we did. We played for 30 people and then a marching band showed up or something yeah. like that. And then it was people fr- showed up. By the way, it was, it was freezing. freezing. It, it was, was like outside. the coldest day I've ever experienced in LA. People don't realize that, like, like when we played at um the we played at the Roxy, maybe I don't know, maybe we played together a few times. I think we played probably three or four times. Yeah, and there was one show we played at the Roxy, and it was right, maybe right before or after the Timbaland album came out. Mm-hmm. And the next time I saw you guys, we played the show together at the Roxy. The next time was. I saw you guys was at Madison Square Garden, yeah. and that was six weeks later. Six weeks, and right. I remember thinking like, when the, when it breaks, it it, it like, breaks, it breaks, it breaks. We got to give a shout out to Brett Stair. Shout out Brett Stair. So Brett Stair comes into the picture, um, and Evan Bogart, and Evan Bogart. So so this is all right. So let me, you know what, talking about what we said earlier about moving to LA, moving to the city that matters. Evan Bogart, Brett Stair. That's why you. Moving to a city that matters, moving to the city that has what you want in it is so critical. These two guys were instrumental in our career as a band and me as a writer. Evan, um, I met God forever ago in Miami when I was signed to Timlin down at the Hit Factory. And Brett, I went to elementary school with in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, long story short, I'm at an in and out. I'm at an in and out in 2004. I'm at an in and out getting burgers and Brett Stair goes Ryan Tedder and and then and then Brett's like yo Ryan and I'm like yeah and I go oh my god Brett Stair he and Evan Bogart who some people listening may know goes yo I met you in Miami like two years ago and it was this weird alchemy of of just like they were agents at APA they were agents at APA we didn't have an agent we had nobody to book us nobody to do anything Long story short, I said, hey, yo, we're playing a show Friday. I'm in a band. We're playing a show Friday at like uh, the Knitting Factory or the Troubadour, fill in the blank, wherever. Brett goes, yeah, man, I'll come down. I I just signed up as a junior agent at APA. Um, They come down and they love the the songs in the show. They end up signing us. And Evan Evan then helped us get signed to Columbia. And Brett, um, both of them combined, really were instrumental in guiding where we went, where we played. We toured, California is so amazing. It's so big. You can tour it like a country. So the 2004, 2005, 2006, we toured the hell out of California, as I'm sure you did too. And I remember opening up for Quiet Drive. I remember opening up for The Bravery at um, Chain Reaction in Orange County. We played with The Bravery, Quiet Drive. We opened up for, um, uh, we opened up Sherwood, um, the big California, Northern California band. We opened up for, um, uh, uh, oh my God, what's the, um, uh, Plain White Tees. Remember the Plain White, that was the moment sure. of the Plain White Tees. They were I big. think, I think we had like 
same era we we played um with Hyam at the Echo and we yeah. played with like uh Ray LaMontagne uh open for my band in 2004 oh or something it was like his first show in front of nobody dude i think maybe like wow. six people were there to see ray lamont i'm jealous yeah and he's and he's there sit, he's sitting there going, trouble yeah like no and sound yeah. literally that song Just, because yeah. it was when uh trouble. jamie Soretta brought him in yeah. it's a whole other thing but anyway yeah, to, to brett stairs credit to i mean Stair's now he, he you know he found you he, he they were in, he Alpine Glacier hiking. He found Bobby Antonoff, who's now yeah. about to release something with Hollywood, and Sarah Hayes, who's yeah. had number one songs as a writer in Nashville. So Brett found a, Brett found a lot of a lot of talent, and the hard part is being an agent in L.A. or a talent scout. And he he worked for me for for a while as an A and R, way before I was ready to have a label or an A and R. Or you know, you, the other thing that happens if you have a huge success uh, on a label. Uh, labels will oftentimes like kind of force you to take a an imprint record label, which is more or less what happened to me. You're like, what do I do with this? I yeah. don't know, but you have to go sign people. Um, and Brett, I just thought he, I loved him, and he had good ears, and he's a good hang. And so I brought him along for the ride, which was which was fun. But uh, Brett and Evan both have a unique um, history in finding talent like seven years before it pops. Yeah. Like Evan discovered Eminem. Yeah, like, little known fact in LA, people know it. People at Interscope know. Evan was in the mailroom. He got the tape sent from Detroit. Listened to it. Thought it was amazing. Brought it to you know, bring it up to Jimmy's office. Like he he discovered Eminem. Brett, you know, more or less, I, you could argue he helped discover One Republic and and you as a songwriter. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So you guys... um you guys now are One Republic at USC. Well, not at USC. You play the show at USC. Yes. You're signed to Timbaland now at Interscope. No, when we did you, when we did the USC show. Oh, you were yeah, on, you're right. You're right. Right, right around that. When we when we signed. When, sorry, when we played USC, we were in the process of signing to to Timbaland. What we we broke the one little element that we're leaving out of the story is when we get dropped. We get dropped by Columbia the week we play Coachella. So, and this is important to say just because it's part of the true history of this band. Our first album that was going to come out on Columbia Records was an alternative rock album with a couple pop songs. Our first single was called Sleep, which is a five and a half minute long Jeff Buckley kind of sounding record. Um, we were an alternative band. That's all I listened to. I wasn't trying to do big, you know, we had Apologize and Stop and Stare. Those are the only two kind of pop leaning records we had and they didn't sound like the Timbaland version. Tim did the remix, <clears throat> um, and well, when we get dropped by Columbia, 
which I thought was a huge middle finger. Um, they dropped us and Katy Perry in the same month. And um, we play Coachella the year that Daft Punk and Madonna did, which was a pretty good year to play. And we get home and I change our status on MySpace from signed to unsigned. Because I thought, we're unsigned now. Technically, Columbia owns the music, but screw them. We're going to post these songs. And I told the band, I said, guys, I'm going to put up Apologize and Stop and Stare online. This is the ad, you know, before SoundCloud and YouTube was a thing. MySpace was the jam. Quarter billion people on planet Earth trolling MySpace. I'm going to put up these songs. If we don't get a reaction from these songs, we should dissolve the band. But if, if we don't get a reaction from Apologize or Stop and Stare, I shouldn't be a songwriter. Like I should literally consider picking a different career. So we post Apologize, Stop and Stare. Within three months, Apologize was the most played song on MySpace and we were the number one unsigned artist on MySpace. Um, and Colby Calais was the artist right before us and she yeah. got signed off MySpace. She was, she was the, with, with Bubbly, that yeah. song that her and Jason Reeves did. Ironically, she was the girl, the 16-year-old, sitting on the couch in the studio while we did all our demos. She was just a local, she lived in the neighborhood in Agora Hills and, and I knew her from that and then she blows up and, and um, Timbaland found us again on MySpace with Apologize and calls me and goes, I want to sign you to Interscope. And we, we were doing our own shows at that point, playing the Avalon and you know, the, the Observatory and all that stuff that APA had booked for us. And when Apologize the Remix came out, it, it blew up, it, as you know, very quickly. And the only problem was it didn't sound like the band. And so we went from being an alternative band that was going to break at alternative radio, which is still in our core where our, head, our heart is, to alternative radio won't touch us with a 10-foot pole because Apologize was a huge pop record. And, and I kept saying, I remember telling Kevin Weatherly, it, but it's a remix. It's a remix, dude. Come on. Yeah. Stop and stare is perfect for K-Rock. It's like, no, man, we can't touch it. We can't touch it. And so that was a huge moment in our career because it, it, it basically gave us a, you either become a pop band or, or you're done. And so we've kind of, last 10 years, just been navigating all starting with that one remix. So crazy. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned Coachella, I just feel like we should do this segment here called What Would Benny Blanco Ask Ryan Tedder? <laughs> and he says, Would you rather headline Coachella s- Sunday night and get $0 or get $2 million and play the smallest tent stage at noon on Thursday for 100 people? Headline Coachella Sunday night, $0. Okay. Cool. But let me answer it like Benny. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That the question's weird. That's a stupid question. Uh yeah, Sunday no, Sunday night Sunday night's better. Okay, so you guys are in that's really impressive. Um so you guys are uh you guys are become the biggest band in the country and one of the biggest bands in the world with this single, you know. Um which brings me to the next segment, which is what would Brent Kutzel ask Ryan Tedder? <laughs> and he says, um, goat cheese or Smirnoff ice? Smirnoff ice. Interesting. Smirnoff ice. Anybody that knows me, there are like two or three things on planet Earth that, that I find more repellent than Satan. And goat cheese is one of them. Ah, uh, okay. So you'd rather Smirnoff ice? I'd rather Smirnoff ice and like... Yeah, I would rather get iced. Is he here? Is he He's not, me? but... It's okay, because I iced him just a few days ago. Okay. Okay, I'm like looking around the studio. Wait a minute, I'm going to get iced today. I can feel it. 
Okay, so apologize is huge. And, um, you know, the thing that's crazy is when all the parts of your career take off at once. Yeah. And you couldn't plan it Ugh. any better or worse than better this. or worse, yeah. You know, you end up with apologize is just so big. Yeah. It's so big. It's everywhere. Yeah. Everybody listening to this knows it. Yeah. It's a one of those things where you all you want to do is write a song where you can say the name of the song and people can sing it. Yep. You know? Yep. Um and then right on the heels of it is bleeding love. Yeah. And I know you've talked about this before, but in the context of of going from I'm you were singing the feature of glacier hiking mm-hmm. like that song Save that. Some during Save this. Some. It how crazy is that to be you're like writing songs and doing some stuff with friends and living in an apartment in LA yeah. and with the two biggest songs in the world. Yeah. Like how do you cope with Walking up two flights of stairs to an apartment, and also knowing that you have the biggest songs, the two biggest songs in the world, one and two, and breaking both yeah. of them are breaking records. I'm a person that appreciates irony, and you know, I don't. While I appreciate the finer things in life, I also am actually pretty basic. Um, and like we're sitting in this nice studio here that costs way too much and is bigger than I need but you know yesterday I was shopping online for $4000 late 80s sobs because that's what I'm trying I'm trying to track down a sob uh, you know a, a sob 900 that that suits my needs so I, I appreciate irony, irony and the guys in my band do too so for me I thought it was hilarious and part of me being in Denver I I think the first three or four years, the irony alone just kept me elevated because I was like, I'm living in Denver doing Adele and Beyonce and, and, and that I'm not doing it in LA and not doing it anywhere. I appreciated the irony. And so for me, there wasn't even a coping thing where I think that, and I thank God for that. I think that's from being raised how I was in Oklahoma. I was like, well, this doesn't change who I am. And I, and I actually, if anything was a little bitter, I go, cool, everybody's calling me now. Where were you three months ago? I was just as good a songwriter 90 days ago as I am right now. I'm not demonstratively better. And yet because Bleeding Love, which I was told to my face, quote unquote, is not a hit, shouldn't even be a single. And, you know, like, you know, I had, I appreciated the fact that it was, you know, some kind of vindication. And, um, you know, for me, it was also the impetus that uh, that got me to leave LA because it, it created a watershed thing. I'm here. I am in Austria. I'm like in the airport in Vienna, uh, you know, taking phoners from a radio station in Chicago for One Republic while I'm in hotel rooms trying to finish, you know, the mix on Jordan Sparks Battlefield. You know what I mean, or whatever the next song was that I was trying to get out, and I was juggling, spinning so many plates, and so. For me, I was like, I can't be in LA. That's it. I mean, in a weird way, those two things happening at the same time was what led me to leave LA. I was like, it's too much. I got to get out of here. I got. I have to have some kind of gate that that prevents everything from pouring in. I need to. I need to get out of here. Yeah. 
I was in Western Romania during that same time, and I, I was as you do. I was eating I was eating goulash in a town somewhere between Arati and Timisoara, Romania. Yeah, and Apologize came on, and I was with my family, and I was like, and they they had seen us play together, yeah. and it'd be like, see, this is what this is. What, what you kind of aim for? It's yeah. like you write a song in LA, and it's possible that it could be at this random like in Romania truck stop, yeah, kind of thing in in Western Romania, and, yeah. and it's so it gets so big so fast. You can't, you know, no matter how much you tour, or you write, or you record, it's like a hit does a kind of tour that you can't physically do in your entire yeah. lifetime. A hit, a hit record is a true smash is ten times better. Than a um, a medium sized hit because the medium sized hit requires all the work in the world. It requires getting on a plane and circumnavigating planet Earth. A, a true smash does the work for you. Yeah. And you know, I mean, ask Sia. She doesn't promote anything, but you know, when when it, but when she delivers a smash, it's like she is promoting it. You know, and right. and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. A buddy of mine. On our second album, I think around the time Secrets was out, Secrets are Good Life. Um, he was in he was in a, a a van with thirty Nepalese people on the outskirts of Kathmandu, and it was playing on the radio. And he texted me from Kathmandu and was like, "Dude, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You're touring those places. Yeah, you're no, touring. Really, yeah, exactly. You're part. You're, you're you're culturally part of their." Uh, you know, you're, you're you're part of you're in the ether. You know, kind of everywhere in the world. So, having apologized and bleeding love in 2007, then 2008, you have Halo and you have Stop and Stare. You know, that that's basically when they at least yeah. peaked. They were written before that. Yeah. And so, but to have Halo, you co-write with your agent and your friend yeah, Evan, Evan Bogart. Bogart. Yeah. Um, at that point, because that song's huge, do you think? Do you start thinking it's easy? I would say if any if any song made me think it's easy, it would be Halo, um, and that's a, that's a tricky thing because um, you weren't supposed to be right. I know, sort of. No, the you know story. the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Evan will tell you, it was written in under three hours and produced. I was producing it as I was writing it. I was throwing the track the track together. Part of what made it easy was, and other any producers listening can relate to this with me. Um, you have moments like, you know, the craft of songwriting is a, is a very specific thing, and if you truly understand the craft, there shouldn't be an era or a time where you're not able to write a hit record. And I know that sounds stupid for me to say, but I, I truly believe that. Maybe not every month, or not every obviously not every day. Sometimes you have years, but you will always end up finding culture will align with what you're writing. Producing is different. Producers, if you have a hot hand as a producer with the sound and your sound gets big enough for a moment, then the world wants that sound. So, because you're not chasing, you're not having to adhere or pay attention to what's current because you are creating what's current. Um, that I was in that like window that there was a three. I've had a few of those windows. That was the first one. There was like a two to three year window where I'm not listening to what anybody else is doing. Okay. I'm literally just sat down, threw up some drums that felt dope to me, some chords that felt right, some sounds. I'm not overthinking it. And, um, Evan and I both had, you know, very good, uh, relationship in, in writing. So that part was easy. 
And um, it was easy. I'm not gonna lie. And and it and I, I think I probably battlefield and already gone. They're all like yeah, already gone. They all sound they all sound really natural and sound like yes. you. They, they sound, sound like me. Yeah. Battlefield already gone. Stop and stare. Halo. They they all feel uh, yeah like 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 me because that at that moment I was a brand new producer and so my sound was derivative of only myself and so it wasn't there was no copying anything it was just it was just this is this what this is my sound now my sounds evolved i still love that vibe but you evolve as you do um and then shortly after that two or three year window literally i would say at the tail end of i i could i could if i thought long enough i could tell you what the last kind of big record i did in that moment was or probably around 2009 or 10 and then it became it you get to 2010 and it becomes Gaga, Black Eyed Peas, Kesha, Katy Perry Land. Like that just takes over the airwaves. And it shifted, represented a unique shift in the sonic taste of the world. Um, and so then when that happened, of course, naturally guys like me and, and whoever else had had a bunch of hits those previous years, we're all going, okay, time to like pull up our bootstraps and figure out our voice in this new era. And how do we... How do we? It's hard. It's hard, and I mean, it's I hard. do it. You then have to, as people always talk about, like the sophomore album and how mm -hmm. hard that sophomore, yeah, album is. But yep. like the, um, the sophomore equivalent album as a songwriter mm -hmm. is also a thing. It's also a thing, dude. It's you know, it's like people people have to follow up their runs in a certain way yep. and become something different because eventually it dries up. That time. When you get to the end of, let's say, already gone, because that would have been, the, I had a run of about five, there's five or six, starting with like going back to Natasha Bedingfield and then, and then going through to already gone it was probably about a three year window and apologize and the wonderful stuff. Um, we, we get to 2010, we're uh, at the beginning of Gaga and Black Eyed Peas, um, Boom Boom Pow and Kesha, and Dr. Luke is beginning to have his run. Max is, is having, you know, ushering back in his run. Um, Benny is f entering into the scene. All, you know, the, our friends and, co and collaborators, well, mostly our friends. Um, and, um, and that moment's happening and I'm having a panic attack internally because from a band's perspective, I'm going, wow. And the era of the band is coming to an end, like the sound, right? And, um, we drop all the right moves, which took like nine months, and then finally turned into a decent size hit. And that's the song that I had written and produced in a hotel room in Luxembourg, which is just, I don't know why I just remembered that, but it was so random. And I remember being in a panic with a band going, guys, we don't sound anything. Like this Luke sound is so big that it's like, if you don't fit into that, there's that nervousness of like, oh my God, we're not gonna, it's not gonna work. And... And we just rolled the dice, rolled the dice completely and said, you know what? We've never chased what anybody sounds like, yet we still somehow sound modern enough. Let's just do what we do. And so then as a band, we put out Secrets and Good Life and those two connected bigger than All the Right Moves. And that's what carried us through the next two years. Good Life is huge. Good Life. And then as it, that, and that became a licensing beast. And that's funny enough, another song that makes you feel like writing is too easy. I wrote that and I'm not joking. I wrote that song in like 20 minutes. It yeah. was literally just like I heard that, that drum loop and then I started doing the oohs and the ahs, like layering in. And it just, I think the brand, and I, I, I envy those songs because I do this every day. 
like when a song takes 20, 30 minutes, you're just like, why can't that be every time? Yeah. Like seriously, why do some songs take literally a month? Like you're just revisiting, revisiting, revisiting it. And um, I try not to get jinxy about it. You know, like if a song really takes digging in, doesn't mean it's a bad song. You know, um, Apologize took six months for me to crack. Meanwhile, Halo took three hours and Good Life took 20 minutes. You just never know. Rumor has it comes out the same time. <clears throat> Rumor has it in Ish. Turning Tables. Well, no, Turning Tables didn't come up. Rumor has it came out. Uh, yeah, Adele. Um, I mean, it, as big as anything you had done before, um, singles-wise, like mm-hmm. that Adele album is, you know, top ten selling album of all time kind yeah. of thing. And equivalent-wise, would be Thriller if it yeah. was if it was nineteen eighty-five. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it's a, uh, I guess it's eighty-three, but whatever the case, the yeah. idea of of Adele being you know, being involved in that project, did you know going into it that as much as you liked the song and as much as you liked Adele, did you have any ideas that this was going to be the real, in a weird sort of way, like a real game changer and a real evolution of you as a writer, it feels like? Um, I had one call with my manager when there was a moment when I brief, briefly misplaced the session files. And I was calling the studio in LA or in London for Rumor Has It, panicking. Um, because what happened is Rick Rubin, she went in to do the whole album with Rick Rubin after getting our demos from me and Paul Epworth and a bunch of others. And, um, and then ended up coming back to the demos. I, I didn't know it was going to sell 30 million copies. I knew that it was the most important thing I'd ever worked on. I told my manager, I remember yelling at her at the time, um, because I was in, I was so distressed. I said, "You don't." She goes, "Why are you so stressed out?" I mean, well, you know, da, 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 da. it's Adele. She's nobody even knows. I go, "You don't understand. You don't understand. This is the most important thing I have ever worked on. Most important thing. I don't care what her past is or what you think of her. This I'm I'm telling you, this is the single most important thing I've ever that I've ever worked on. I just knew. I didn't know what it was going to go on to do, but I knew in my in my gut. Furthermore. And you'll see as now that I, now that I can tell that that we're going you know chronologically through songs, you'll see these gaps. Whenever you see like a a gap in my career as a songwriter, those are the moments when One Republic has taken over, like time, like I'm on the road, touring, whatever. So I had had our second album. I think this is around the time of our second album. I had been furiously working on that and blown off every other artist. I, I think I did one song. I did Happy with Leona and I did like, um, I'm leaving something out. I did one other single. I had done barely, I did like something with Adam Lambert. I did barely any writing with other artists for like a solid year other than one. And the only artist I worked with really in that time was Adele. So it had, I was, there was so much pressure for me internally as a writer because I'm trying to keep both careers going at all times, which is a nightmare, by the way. Um, still is. And, and so Adele for me, being that those are the only two songs really that I did in a year with anybody that was not One Republic, it was so precious to me that it did sound right and that it did work. And I was so proud of Rumor Has It. I, in my brain, I knew that it was the most interesting thing I had produced. And, and in the strangest way, that moment, that specific song, we did Turning Tables first, which was me basically riff, like trying to write Colorblind by, uh, um, uh, why am I spacing on their name? Um, Counting Crows. Um, but rumor has it, 
I sat down that day and this is before the whole folk gospel thing had exploded. So it was really strange because I was like, are you cool if we do a dirty bluesy gospel thing? And she goes, I can't believe you just said that. I just did a song with Paul Epworth. And I go, who's that? I didn't know who that was. Nobody knew who he was at the time. Because I just did a song with Paul that is that vibe. And if we do one here now, that could be like the sound of the album. I didn't know, but the song she was referring to was Rolling in the Deep. And I come in and do Rumor Has It. And um, uh, I just started stomping and playing this kind of Radiohead guitar riff. And I mean, first thing out of her mouth, she, she ain't real. She ain't going to be able to love you like I will. You know, like immediately she wrote it stream of consciousness. She knew exactly what it was about. And um, I, again, another one of those days where you kind of pinch yourself and go, why was that so easy? Why can't every day be, the, be that easy? That sounds offensive to me because that's one of the few songs in the last, you know, 10 years that I'm like, fuck, I wish I wrote that. <laughs> I've had a few of those that I wish I wrote, trust me. Um, you know, Love Somebody and Maps, Maroon 5 hits, they're, they're a different situation. Different. So I, I think it's different when you become part of the defining songs of people's careers. Yeah. Not to say those weren't defining yeah, songs, but like, you know, um, the, the Bleeding Loves and yeah. the Halos and Burn for Ellie Goulding, yeah. like those things to me feel like... They're their career defining. They're career defining. Love, um, love Somebody, We Got Lucky. I'll just say this. I did it with a dude. We were, we were chasing you. I, I think it's fair to say with the songs you're always chasing. We Love Somebody, me and um, uh, Nat from, from 303, who lived in Boulder, came in to do one, one session in Denver one day. And 303 had had their moment, and we wanted to do um, Robin, um, uh, what is it, Boyfriend or whatever. It's, it's, I think it's the Not song, the, Girlfriend, uh, what is it called? It's the one that's like, dun, 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 like it. Not Dancing on My Own. It might have been, it's either Dancing right. on My Own or whatever the song is that's called, like, Your Girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, I wish I was your, I, I'm forgetting the name on it. We were chasing a Robin record. And I had done Lucky Strike with Adam. He came out for a week. Um, this is right after the voice popped off. And he came out for a week in Denver. We did Lucky Strike, which I was hoping was going to be the first single. But the funny thing happens um, about getting the last single on an album, because um, I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm dealing with that right now. Uh, you either kind of want to be the first or the last, because, and I'll say this, and so songwriters listening can appreciate this. It may not be the career-defining song, but I'll be damned if Love Somebody hasn't outplayed everything. Yeah, it I hear constant. it. Yeah. I hear it every week. Yeah. And when you're the last song on an album, for whatever reason, radio stations, they will play it ad nauseum until the first single of the next album comes out. Right. So you kind of get this like, like um, free bandwidth, which is, which is the, that's my only story about that song about Love Somebody is that we got all this free bandwidth. And I will say Max Martin helped us finish it. And then refused to take publishing. He did the same thing with Dangerous Woman, and we, you know, where he came and he did all the vocal production and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And um, we went through like a, a thing trying to figure out how to give him writing credit on yeah. it because he, he didn't. Take it. He didn't. Wouldn't take it. It was a really interesting situation because like. I, I, we can name four or five songs that we've discussed on this podcast mm -hmm. that he. Maybe wrote the hook, yeah, or maybe wrote and like and didn't and didn't take publishing on it, and which is should teach 
a lot of our generation, yeah. it kind of helped teach our generation versus the people who are maybe half a generation or a generation yeah. older that would take any publishing of anything that they are even close to yep. versus what he does, which is, you know, sometimes you're the publisher, or in his case, in that album, he's the executive producer. So he's already getting so it. So he's already doing it. And, if, and rather than taking credit, Mm-hmm. Even when credits do, sometimes yep. it's like, you know what? I'm going to play publisher right now. Or yep. I'm going to play executive producer. And I'm not going to go and do a money grab yep. for the sake of money grab. And I think it's important to note there are, and I'm, I'm not going to name names on this podcast, but there are, you know, we hear it. I hear on, a, I'd say on a monthly basis of writers who are, I find out are credited on hits that are out currently yeah. that that I know and everybody that was in the room knows wasn't didn't do anything or sometimes a song will get passed around for for a few writers and the session you were in on it got erased and is no longer there but people will still cl- make claim on a song which I personally if you can sleep at night doing that fine I've never done that I I'll, I won't tell you while the mics are on but when the mics are off I will tell you two hit records that I wrote the chorus or a huge part of that I have zero credit for um, and one of them hurts me. One of them st- will probably always hurt me. One of them won't. And we'll leave everybody guessing on that. Um, the artist just simply forgot or, or didn't want to address it. And I've been blessed and lucky in life. And I, I truly believe that it will come back around or that it already has. Yeah. And you can't make money grabs, but I will say Max on, on Love Somebody, the post choruses, the melody and the bridge, which was for some reason a nightmare, and we know like nobody loves bridges right now anyway. Right. He hates bridges. Yeah. Um, that bridge exists, and the post chorus exists on "Love Somebody," which is probably has half a million spins at this point. And Max did it, and with us, but he did it, and I was like, you know, Adam and I were like, Adam was like, yeah, man, I think he gets like twenty percent, like twenty, like twenty, and I was like, yeah, sure. So I texted him, Max, we're giving you twenty. He said, absolutely not. No, I refuse. <laughs> I'm I mean, not you're taking about, it. <laughs> you're talking about love somebody. You're talking about we are who we are. We're talking about um, uh, what's the uh, want to want me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the the post of of dangerous woman, he changed. Yeah. He's like, ah, I like this rhythm better. And Jay Cash and it was told, a better thing. Jay Cash told me what he did on We Are Who We Are, which yeah. makes the song. Yeah, it makes yeah, the song. I did. mean, he makes these some of these edits, and and it's just yeah. because he's. He's you need to better be, than everybody being, else. Being a finisher, being a finisher is is yeah. supremely important. There's a lot of guys that can get a lot of songs started. Yeah. Understanding when a record is done is is hypercritical. Totally. Um, okay, so welcome to New York, Taylor Swift. Also a huge album, um, but it really doesn't compare to Counting Stars, which yeah. I think is like, you know, maybe the last song that we that we'll talk about as like an individual single. Mm-hmm. Because um, redefining the two things that matter for a writer is defining an artist or redefining an artist. Yep. And then there's all those songs in between. Yep. And as an artist, to have the kind of longevity where you have the the intro and then to have the sort of redefining thing. Yeah. I mean, as big of a song as you had had in between, Good Life, all those things. Yeah. Counting Stars is a different level. It's a different beast. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you have to repeat success now that you've had this long of a career? You'd be lying if you said you didn't. Of course I do. Um, I, you know, the, the, 
Counting Stars turning into what it did. And again, another song where I've had A&Rs and, and uh, label people tell me it wasn't a hit and it shouldn't even be a single. So lesson number one is trust your gut. If you're here, you're here for a reason. You have to trust your gut at the end of the day. Shut out the noise. Don't let too many cooks in the kitchen because they will absolutely muddy the soup and it will just taste like like horrible if you let too many people add spices to it. Um, and Counting Stars fell in danger of that. And finally, we took the reins after two singles. Also, never pick a single based on a campaign. If you have like Chevrolet wants to use your song for a, a thing in March and it's whatever, um, if it doesn't fit your timeline and it's not exactly the song that you want to put out, do not align yourself with the campaign. There will be others. Get the song right and then everybody will come knocking. Um, Counting Stars was the third single. The first two, the thing about One Republic sing, songs are weird. Our, you know, we have these, every album has these career defining records, but we still have all these other, like a, a, other songs that connect, you know, like a, this isn't, and this isn't me propping us up or, or bragging. This is just the, the metrics that I deal with within One Republic is unique because I understand what moves the needle for us globally and what doesn't. So like, um, you know, uh, on our the, on our most recent album, before I pulled the plug on it, which I pulled it right after we dropped it, because I that's a whole other topic that just you can find on the internet. Articles of me talking about almost having a nervous breakdown. But we put out a single called Wherever I Go. And we've done, I think it's it's triple platinum, right? Everyone's oh, that's amazing. Three times platinum, three million sales, that's amazing. When you've been around as long as we have, a song, if a song doesn't go really crush like globally connect um, and this sounds like like 1% of 1% problems but for me to complain about but it's true every time we release a single I leave my family and my kids all five of us do and we're gone forever I was gone 240 days out of two, 2016 without touring that's just promo um, everywhere in the world because once you once you break globally, you can't just do promo in Stockholm and London. You got to do Sydney. Well, that's the opposite part of the world. And then you're trying to also make money in, the, in that time. Oh, we picked up a private gig in Istanbul. We need to go to Istanbul. Like, and when you release a song, it is such a commitment of your life. You trade time, which is the only thing you have with your family and friends. You're gone, man. You're just gone. Your relationships crumble. Things fall apart. So I take picking singles like so um, carefully now. And, you know, it helps to have streaming and all this stuff. Now you can kind of get gauges of stuff before you really pull the trigger. But Counting Stars was kind of our, okay, this is how One Republic singles work. We put out Feel Again because it was with a campaign. It did okay. If I Lose Myself wasn't doing great, but then Alesso did the remix and that did great. Yeah, they did. But we still hadn't had a, like a true smash yet. How we knew that Counting Stars was the song, this is weird. We were in Beirut. We were playing, we had just played Tunisia and we were playing a festival, um, NRJ festival in Byblos, Lebanon, which is the, Google this everybody, it is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Cool. Yeah, it's kind of a cool fact. Yeah. I ate goat for the first time, mm. by the way, tastes pretty good. Um, so we're playing this festival. <clears throat> I remember standing on this the edge of this deck, looking out over whatever the, sea, the Mediterranean or whatever it is there. And um, we look to the right and we're towards Syria. ISIS is just popping off like literally that month. 
And it was just an interesting time. We had dropped two singles that had done okay. It was like, you know, One Republic style hits or whatever you want to call them. And um, I'm knowing that like I'm facing a whole tour going like Counting Stars is coming out. If we don't, you know, if we don't connect this, we're screwed. We go on stage, we perform our whole new, pretty much our whole new album. We get to Counting Stars halfway through the set. This is in Lebanon. And I think there's like 7,000 people there. Every single person screamed every lyric at the top of their lungs from the moment we started playing it to the end of the song. And I turned to Brent and said, that's our single. And we shoot the video uh, in New Orleans on a shoestring budget, which is hilarious considering the, the views it ended up getting. It was like, it was the first time that we took the reins. So we're doing the video. I'm writing the treatment with the director. We're doing it in the city. We want to do it. Nobody else stopped talking to us. We're putting the song out. And it, it represented, um, for the first time ever, Counting Stars, that song and that album represented what truly was the best use of my voice. And it tapped into the gospel thing that I'd grown up listening to and singing and the organic nature. We figured out how to sound like a band, but still be modern. And, and to this day, if you're in a band, that is a nightmare. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, today I'll be working on new, I'll be working on new One Republic stuff today. And, um, we did like 10 new songs, uh, the week before Christmas, 10 or 12 for a new album. And I finally have cleared my head and gotten over my fog of, of what 2016, 17 was. And I now feel like I know what that sounds like, what I want it to sound like, but I'll be damned if I, if I didn't want the sound of that era, that the Adele era, the counting stars, that era that even, even Avicii wake me up that kind of gospel soul folk thing. I loved that era so yeah. much. I was talking with a writer the other day about it. He was going, don't you wish that could have just kept going? Of course. Oh my God. For man. songwriters? For I mean, songwriters. Like real songs. So I mean, for everybody listening, was, was 2014, 15 not the best two years of yeah. like the last Well, 10? what's weird is those are the same years that you also had Call Me Maybe, and you'd also have yeah, like right. Gautier. Gautier. And had oh, like, somebody I used to know. Yeah, Gautier, I mean, 2015, 16. You had like a, a oh whole range of like songs. You had fun really kind of came out around that time too. So you even yep. had like it was alternative all, rock bands. Dude, it was that incredible. Were, it was that was time. my favorite time. Gautier, yeah. somebody I used to know. You were talking about songs you wish you wrote. That yeah. That is in my top five yeah. songs I wish I wrote. Yeah, we are young is that same time that oh it's phenomenal we are young is phenomenal that hurts me a little bit fun guys get back together come on um okay so um we're gonna go to a segment called uh i'm gonna name five things and just yeah. say what's off the top of your head yeah. um first one ron lafitte your manager stable consistent smart relentless um friend nozan canella Hilarious, smart, bizarre, talented, homie. I mean, you guys have done a lot of work together. Yeah. He was out, a guest on this show also, so uh, shout out to Noel, Noel, Shout out to Noel. Noel's been my longest signed writer. He did Good Life. I, he, mm-hmm. I walk in one day and, and I hear this beat and I go, who did that? And, and Brent goes, Noel did. Or, you know, I, more or less, that's how the story went. And... I, he was engineering for us in Denver, and I immediately was like, "Dude, um, let's let's do a publishing situation." And so Noel's been with me for eight, nine years now, and he is one of my favorite human beings on earth. I was with Noel and Brent when you guys had just shot the video for Good Life, and you they you had 
emailed it or something. We were at the Village mm-hmm. in LA, and and we played it there. And I was like, "Oh, that's really cool." And it was we were in the smallest room, it just no, room that we wouldn't be in now. No, I rented a room because um, I had an artist. I told you I was I was handed a a, a record label from Interscope, kind of. It sounds weird, but forcibly, Jimmy. Jimmy was like, "You're gonna take. You're gonna take this deal. You're gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna give you a label. You're gonna take it because, because I'll tell you what's gonna happen. You're gonna walk out the fucking door and you're gonna go sign with somebody else, and I'm gonna have to kill you. So like, he yeah. gave me a record. Gave me a record label, and I had to sign an artist. Truthfully, had to, and found one with Brett, and she wanted to camp out at the village, so that I locked out that room for like six months, and um, I never stepped foot in that room. By the way, yeah, I did. Yeah, um, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, unicorn, ambitious isn't a strong enough word. So unicorn, taller than you think, uh, um, smarter than you can imagine, effortless, insatiable. Adele. Beautiful, the best, effortless, mother, human. Genevieve, your wife. (laughs) Just in case you need it. I was like, just in case. I, okay, yeah, I have all the Genevieves in the world. Uh, beautiful friend, the best. Um, smells amazing. <laughs> Forever. What's the advice you'd give to up and coming writers? Um, well, if we haven't put too fine a point on it, move to where other writers live. <laughs> I would. I would recommend London, Toronto. LA and you know obviously if you're in Canberra or Perth maybe get to Sydney you know yeah, right. um, um, advice I would say <clears throat> be very cautious to chase what you hear out there now ever because by the time you have mimicked that perfectly the world has moved on from that anyway and As cheesy and trite as it sounds, the weird amalgamation of influences and music and life experiences and hate and love and loss that you've experienced in your lifetime makes you the most unique human being on earth, period. Because that is what the world hasn't heard yet. They haven't heard your soup your combination of all these experiences and all the music you've taken in, however weird and abstract it may be. And so to water that down or brand that with somebody else's brand is a disservice. And if you have any shot in the world, the only shot you have is being the absolute most dialed version of yourself. Um, And I would also say this, I walk into every room ever any studio or meeting, assuming that the person sitting across the way from me or that's in there with me, the artist in there with me, might be more talented than me. So the only thing, and I realized that early on, I operate under that assumption that everybody's more talented. Whether they are or they aren't is immaterial. Operate under that assumption. The only thing you can control if you can't control God-given ability or talent is the time you put in. And so if you put in more time Look, Kobe is more talented and still is there before people get there and he stayed until people, after people left shooting free throws. So bottom line is, if you outwork everybody, all things being equal, you're going to win. Yeah. You stick it out. The other thing I would say, don't surround yourself with yes people. Be your 
own worst critic. One of Luke's best qualities was he was the single most self-critical person like in the studio and, and blunt as hell and would tell you, you suck and the song sucks and, and the idea sucks. Like be critical of yourself so the world doesn't have to be. When you put your stuff up on SoundCloud or we're not SoundCloud anymore, but Spotify or, you know, whatever, it behooves you to be your own worst critic, critic because otherwise people are going to tear it apart anyway. Sure. Yeah. I think some of that's like taste too. It's like you want, you know, when people send music to me, it's like, well, would you take this song and post it all over your social media and say, this is mine? Mm -hmm. And I usually mean that when it's somebody else who's like, hey, will you listen to my cousin's music or my friend's music? It's like, is this great? Yes. Is it great? Is it great? Is this something that you would compare to Oasis? The, is it, do yep. you think this is as good as Wonderwall? If yep. you think it's as good as Wonderwall, 100%. I'll listen to it. The difference between <laughs> the, the difference between know. good and great is the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And it, and it seems like it might be just a yeah. couple words or lines. You know, I have a song right now that um, is One Republic that we have a phenomenal chorus, like 10 out of 10, smash chorus. And I've been icing the verse for four months, not four months, four weeks, because I know the verse isn't right. Yeah. It's driving me insane. And I've had people, I've had voices tell me it's good, it's good to go. Mix it, let's go. And I am the but only you know. solitary voice in my soul knows it will come out and it will, it'll be, yeah. You know, and this sounds again like me, like boohooing, but yeah, we'll get. The, my worst case scenario with One Republic, for when we're going to put out new music, is you drop something and you get 200 million streams. It's like, oh, it's successful. No, it's not. Like, I, it, it, you've, you have to set a higher standard, a higher bar. You know, you have to, every single album, every song is your first song. It's your first album every single time. And if you don't treat it like that, then it's just a matter of time before, you know, nobody's calling. I mean, that's the truth. And it's, it's in terms of like being self-critical, Sheeran is a good guy to use an example. Um, you know, Ed, Ed and I have done a number of songs together, one of which uh, made this most recent album and is coming. But, hey. um, but uh, he, he'll do on average six songs a day. When you, when you do a session with him, I went to his place in the UK or you know, LA, New York, wherever he is. You'll tear through five to six ideas and I, I swear to God, the, we will shoot down hit records left and right in the room. And, and you'll be staring at them like incredulously. Just like, how are we walking away from this idea? And this feels massive. Like, and he'll be like, yeah, but it's not my brand of massive. Or like, yeah, but I think it's good. I think it's really, really good. I don't think it's great. And he has that innate sense of, it's like, it's like if it's not doesn't have the ch- chance of being a number one, then why are we even wasting right. time on it? First of all, thank you for doing this, dude. Thank you for ha- for having me. Thank you for coming. Yeah, exactly. thank you for being here. Um, you, we've we've obviously known each other now for a long time. We've gone to friends' weddings together. This is years ago, but I think it was something you said early on. You said you know compare and despair. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying that somewhere. Yeah, and. You know, when you're friends with somebody who is far exceeding expectations of your group, of our generation, you know, it's like here we are all in bands together. And, you know, 
you were in a band, and if you look, Ricky Reed was in a band the same time, and so is Evigan, yeah. so is Sean Douglas, so are like all these, a lot of songwriters who are yeah. like all in the same sort of like the same situation. And then Age you craps, see, yeah, and you see somebody get so successful and develop their, their brand, and yeah. you end up becoming such a brand that you're on the cover of Billboard magazine, you have, you write with all these people, you get Grammy nominations, you do all these things. And, in that thing of like, do you, how do you stay yourself? And it helps when you have a friend who throughout their career stays themselves. Yeah. Because you're like, oh yeah, well, no, I mean, work for, for Ryan, it'll work yeah. for all of us. Let's yeah. just, yeah. let's just stay ourselves. Yeah. And we all have ended up with this, some sort of moment, mm-hmm. partly because we had friends that led the way in being themselves. Yes. And so, you know, I always looked up to you and to Evan because you guys were like, hey, you can do this. You, yeah. Your verses are really contemporary and these yeah. choruses are. And I, I, was, I didn't know before you guys saying, like, you should do this. Yeah. So thank you for changing my life, Dude, man. I, I, you know, I was just racking my brain to, to think where I was. And I actually think that the moment I said that, I think I was at your apartment. Yeah, it's either yours or Brett's because I remember sitting. I remember there's a staircase in the middle that went up to the second level of this apartment complex. Oh, that was Brett's. It was Brett's. Okay, so we were Brett's. Yeah, but we were were at a no (laughs) birthday party. Passed out. He was passed out drunk. We drew dicks on him. We drew dicks on his face. (laughs) Oh man, (laughs) that was amazing, Brett. If you're listening, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, Um, uh, yeah, he was so passed out. Yeah, that was his birthday. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember that very well. But I think that was the time that you were, tra- or you were starting to maybe. It might have been sooner than that. But regardless, um, dude, I was so happy. I'll never forget. Like, um, it's the first. It, it was. I want to say it was like four years ago. Four years ago. Five years yeah. ago. You had like the first non, like non glacier hiking, non whatever. You had your outside yeah big hit. And yeah. I remember, um, I didn't know you had written it. Luffman told me. And I was like, yo, I really like this song. And he's like, yeah. He's like, you know, you know Ross? And I go, yeah. And he goes, Ross wrote this. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Ross Golan? And he's like, yeah, Ross Golan. I was like, what? What the hell? And, um, and then I remember going online and like pulling your name up and talking with Evan. And he was like, yo, he's like, he just went from like zero to like 90 just in the last six months. So congrats to you, man. I think it's Thank phenomenal. You. And like, you're, you're you know, there's the other thing too is it's a small world in songwriting, um, and so you know when people contribute and when people are a good vibe. And I can say that like, and this is something that you would never know unless I told you. But like within the writer community in LA, like everybody loves you. Oh, everybody awesome. that ever writes with you is like, oh my god, he's one of my favorite people to write with. And I just want to tell you that because it's like. Um, there's a lot of people that people don't say that about. Yeah, that's no, a rare that's a commodity. Huge, huge compliment. It's a rare commodity. Thank you. Yeah, thank I you. want to draw dicks on your face the next chance I get. Dude, on that note, thank you. And uh, <laughs> here we go. Next One Republic album. One Republic album. Yeah. Here we go. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, 
be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On next episode, we sit down with Busby. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.